The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 7, Late 19th Century Politics, Part 1. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Welcome back. Now, before we get started, as always, thank you for listening. Please visit the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can sign up for our email list there. And if you're into the whole social media thing, you can follow me on Twitter, at AmericanHisCast. If you would like to help out the show, you can join our Patreon. The link is on the website. I appreciate everyone who has joined so far. It really helps to cover the costs of books and the website and hosting. So thank you all very much. Just a shout out to um, our newest member on Patreon is Cara Di Domizio. I hope I got that right. Um, thank you for joining. Um, I've also forgotten to send a couple of shout outs out there to Chris Fernandez Peckham and to Chris, all of whom are members as well. So thank you all for joining. I should also mention before we get too much further that if you're on Patreon and donating at the $2 level at least, what you get is you get the show a week early and it remains ad free. I expect that we will be having some ads here soon. So if you like it without the advertising, that's an incentive to join the Patreon. If you join at the $3 level, you get access to 1983, the year the world almost ended. Uh, we just published a new episode for that series about the Russian Revolution and the worker state. It's uh, part of a two or three part series in which we're kind of discussing the background of the Soviet Union. And um, I'm already working on the next episode for that. So head over there, the website, sign up if that's your cup of tea. Finally, you can also email me uh, any questions or comments or concerns that you have. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. All right. Now, this week, the song of the week is Turkey in the Straw, provided to us courtesy of the Internet Archive. And we'll see you on the other side. Okay, so let's start by discussing the Panic of 1873 and the Depression that was a result of the inflation caused by the Civil War, as well as the bubble created in railroad building. Now, the resulting economic depression was quite severe. Western mining states and farmers sought the introduction of silver um, into the nation's monetary standard, and this was in order to create inflation, which we've talked about on previous episodes. Um, remember back in episode 3.3, the supply of money doesn't really matter, or I should say the size of the supply doesn't really matter. Um, however, the government starts to inflate the currency. What's going to happen is that it's going to push savers 
out, or it's going to punish savers, I should say, and it's going to discourage saving. Um, it rewards debtors in that they will be able to pay back money borrowed today with cheaper money earned sometime down the road. Now, one of the so-called mainstream comments that you often see about the 1870s and the Panic of 1873 specifically is that it results in a depression and in deflation. Now, there's a problem with this narrative, so let's break down what led up to it and then move forward a bit. First, you had an inflationary environment in the United States in the 1860s. Why? Well, the United States government was fighting a war, a massive war, which had a massive bill attached to it. They were also in the midst of a massive public works project, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. The federal debt in 1860 was somewhere around $64 million, but by 1866, it ballooned to over $2 billion. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that's a pretty big <laughs> increase. Economic historians in this narrative often argue that the money, the monetary contraction in the aftermath of the panic led, in 1879, to a resumption of payment in specie, or hard currency. Now, this issue, the money issue, emerged as the biggest political issue of both the 1870s and the 1890s. New political parties, such as the Greenback Labor Party in the 1870s, the Populist Party in the 1890s, they were dedicated to increasing the money supply by adding massive amounts of silver. The climax of the issue was in the election of 1896, when those who advocated the unlimited coinage of silver were soundly defeated. We will talk more about this uh, later in the episode. Um, there were also some economic issues that farmers had to deal with. First, they were in perpetual debt, and many ended up losing their farms to foreclosure. Now, as the century went on, advances in farming and in the distribution of food, that led to lower food prices, which caused many a farmer to lose sleep, obviously. All of this was compounded by the normal difficulties farmers face. Things like natural disasters from freezing temperatures, insects, diseases. You know, it's not an easy job, right? Now, a little bit more before we go on. What the farmers were seeing as the market was the market telling them that it was time to get out of farming. The advances in farming, as well as transportation and distribution, that meant that the economy needed less farmers to produce the same amount of food. Now, I know this is harsh sounding, but that's what was happening. You didn't need 50% of the population farming. Because there were too many farmers putting supply onto the market, the price of food dropped. Now, the sad thing is that these drops in prices often meant that farmers would attempt to put more supply into the market to make up for the difference, or they would just increase the size of their crop. This then led to further price decreases. So it was kind of like this never-ending cycle. Now, furthermore, government policies also made things difficult for farmers. Their land was often overvalued, and thus that led to higher property taxes. Further, protective tariffs, which might have benefited manufacturers, actually hurt farmers. It meant they had to pay higher prices for those goods than they would have without the tariffs. Farmers, on the other hand, produced goods that were unprotected and had to compete on the world market often against people who could produce the same thing for less. To make matters worse, you had these agricultural trusts, which made items more expensive for farmers. There was a barbed wire trust, a fertilizer trust, a harvester trust, and even a railroad trust. Now, all of these acted to increase the price of the good in question, as you had no choice but to purchase from them. Had the market been truly open and free, competition would have driven those prices down and benefited those who were trying to make a living as a farmer. We can refer back to our economics episodes and the idea of the broken window fallacy here. I'm sure the proponents of the trust would argue 
that they benefited people, especially those in the industry in question. Now, without a barbed wire trust, the workers in that industry would be harmed, perhaps, but this is hurting the farmers. If they have to pay, say, 20% more for barbed wire, that's less money they have for other goods and services that they need. So society is not truly improved by these groups. Finally, some historians argue the farmers of the late 19th century were politically underrepresented and poorly organized. I'll let you decide if that is the case here. All right, so now let's talk about the political rise of the farmer. In 1867, the National Grange of the Patrons of Husbandry, um, the Grange was formed. Now, its purpose was to provide farmers with social and educational activities. For example, picnics, music, lectures. Initially, it was supposed to help reduce the isolation many farmers felt living in sparsely populated areas. By 1875, the organization had about 800,000 members, most of whom were in the Midwest and the South. Eventually, the organization attempted to make life easier for the farmer, both economically and politically. First, the Grange established cooperatives for both consumers and producers. They had things like grain elevators to store excess grain, dairies to store and process products, and even cooperative stores where farmers could purchase supplies such as seed, plows, and fertilizers. Secondly, the Grange also attempted to help farmers politically. They attempted to end the monopolistic railroad practices that led to farmers paying higher prices when it came to shipping their goods to the market. A third and final way the Grange helped to attempt, uh, attempted to help farmers was by attempting to manufacture harvesting machines. However, in the end, this ultimately failed. So where was the Grange most powerful? That was in states such as Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Minnesota. They attempted to pass laws that would allow the government to control big business to the benefit of the people. Now, of course, whether who you define as the people is probably based on what your job was. For the Grangers, the people meant the farmers. They attempted to regulate railroad rates and storage fees that the railroads and the operators of warehouses and grain elevators charged farmers. So all of this leads to the question, how successful was the Grange in achieving their stated goals? And the answer is, not very. The problem for the Grange is that their laws were often poorly written and often overturned by higher courts. Some historians argue this was because those higher courts were in the pockets of big business. But the fact remains, they could have written those laws better. Perhaps that would have helped them not get overturned in court. Especially after the Wabash case, which we talked about in a previous episode, um, the Grangers saw their influence wane in state politics. Now, besides the Grange, you, had, you also had, in the second half of the 19th century, the rise of populism. But before we can talk about the populists, we need to talk about a movement that was important in the rise of that group. So in the 1870s, a third party emerged, and it combined the inflationary goals of earlier so-called Greenback supporters with a program for improving conditions for laborers. This was the Greenback Party. In 1878, it earned over 1 million votes and elected 14 members to Congress. In the election of 1880, the party nominated General James B. Weaver, a Granger and veteran of the Civil War, to its presidential ticket. Now, he went on to win um, only 3% of the popular vote. He would eventually run for president on the Populist Party ticket in 1892, but for the Greenback Party, this was basically their high-water mark. The party itself, if you are thinking of the political spectrum, was on the left. It was for both currency and labor rights as well as anti-monopolism. By the fall of 1888, the party ceased to exist. This is because, for the most part, its Irish supporters migrated back to the Democratic Party. I would also suggest that this happened because, traditionally, third parties end up 
pressuring one of the major parties to add their issue or issues to the agenda of said major group. In this case, the Greenback Party was successful in moving the Democratic Party to adopt a looser monetary policy and, in the end, abandon the gold standard. Now, a second third party that arose around this time was the Populist Party. In the South, you had these farmers' alliances formed uh, in 1877 and in the Midwest in 1880, who increasingly voiced discontent. Also in the South in 1889, you had the creation of the Colored Alliance, which consisted of African-American farmers in the South. In a manner similar to the Grangers, they sponsored social events and political action, as well as cooperatives. They also tried to get the government to regulate railroads and manufacturers in a way that would benefit themselves. So these farmers' alliances, they met in 1889 and boasted a membership of over 3 million members. They had two major demands, free silver and a sub-treasury plan for farmers. So let's address the idea of free silver first. This was a major issue in the late 19th century. The advocates favored expanding the money supply through the unlimited coinage of silver into money on demand. Instead of strictly adhering to the fixed money supply, they felt was implicit to a gold standard. Just as an aside, I would suggest this would be better handled by the market than the government. Let the consumer decide what they prefer. Government getting involved means that this decision will not be what is best for society, but is best for whichever group the politicians favor. But I digress. Now, the problem with the free silver folks idea was that, thanks to the actual price ratio between gold and silver, if the United States had used both gold and silver at that time, their proposal of fixing the weight ratio at 16 to 1 would have been a failure. The actual price ratio favored gold at that time, far more than 16 to 1. Thus, economists warned that the less valuable silver coins would drive the more valuable coins out of circulation. This is something known as Gresham's Law. It states that cheaper money will drive out more valuable money, as consumers will prefer to hoard that which is more valuable and only spend that which is less valuable. So the second demand was what is called a sub-treasury plan. Now, this called for federal sub-treasury offices alongside warehouses or grain elevators. The reason? Farmers often experienced cash flow problems throughout much of the year. They got paid, remember, they get paid when their product was sold, and that was often in the fall. So the idea was to have these sub-treasury offices loan them up to 80% of the value of the crop at modest fees. Now, in the end, the sub-treasury plan was defeated in Congress in 1890. This caused the alliances to take political matters into their own hands, when create a third party. Before we talk about the party, I want to mention that since the Civil War, you had Greenbackers, you had working men's parties, the Knights of Labor parties, and even these farmers' alliances who argued that banking interests and trusts, the, quote, Eastern establishment, end quote, as the culprits who exploited workers and farmers. So having said that, I'm sure you know what's coming. Yes, the establishment of the People's Party, a.k.a. the Populist. This party emerged in the 1890s through the aforementioned Farmers' Alliances. It was born in Topeka, Kansas, and it attracted recruits from Farmers' Alliances and disenfranchised Southern whites. This was another left-wing party which argued for bimetallism and corporatism as well as populism. Now, just a quick thing about the populists and their movement. As you can probably imagine, there's been a fairly vigorous debate, at least amongst historians, about the nature of populism. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this issue, Okay, but suffice it to say that the idea that populism automatically means racist Nazis, a critique that I've seen a lot of times, uh, often in recent years, is a criticism that is lacking in both subtlety and context. Historian William Holmes was writing in 1990, 
noted that the arguments centering on whether or not populism was a provincial movement harboring dangerous tendencies versus a positive force for constructive reform was abandoned by professional historians as early as the 1960s. Since then, the literature is fractured and there's not really a clear overall narrative or argument between the authors. Instead, if one studies the literature, um, you'll see that the writings are mostly monographs, which focus on states and regions instead of there being a distinct school of thought, such as what one would find in the historiography of the Cold War or, say, New Labor history. While it might, at first glance, appear that the populists were unsuccessful, they did get officials elected to office. In the 1892 election, their nominee, James B. Weaver, earned 22 electoral votes and won almost 9% of the popular vote. Probably their high watermark came in the 55th Congress from 1897 to 1899, when they had five members in the Senate and 22 members in the House of Representatives. Now, furthermore, as I mentioned a moment ago, they attracted recruits from the Farmers' Alliances and others who felt disenfranchised. Amongst these new members was Ignatius Donnelly, elected to Congress three times, and a major figure in the movement. He had once been a utopian author, similar to Henry George and Edward Bellamy. Another important figure in the movement was Mary E. Lease, famous for speeches in which she denounced the Eastern Establishment on Wall Street. Um, she famously said, quote, Kansas should raise less corn and more hell, end quote. Now, a third famous figure in the party um, was sockless Jerry Simpson. Now, a third famous figure in the party was sockless Jerry Simpson, who, along with Lease, traveled to the South to get the uh, Southern Alliance support for the Populist Party. And then finally, you had Tom Watson. He was elected to Congress in 1890, where he fought for the sub-treasury plan and for populist unity in 1892. In 1896, and a sign that the populist message had broad appeal, he was the Democratic Party's vice presidential candidate alongside William Jennings Bryan. So one of the issues that is often tied in with the populists or populism, populist, is disenfranchisement and anti-black violence. And to a great extent, there was racism present. However, that doesn't tell us much about the group, as I think it's pretty safe to say that you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the late 19th century who wasn't racist. Furthermore, there were some Southern populists, including one Thomas E. Watson, who talked openly about how poor blacks and poor whites should set aside their racial differences because, at the end of the day, they had shared economic interests. Now, having said that, you also had folks like Pitchfork Ben Tillman, a Democrat use his influence in the Southern Alliance to become governor of South Carolina and dominate the Democratic Party in that state. Tillman successfully disenfranchised blacks in that state's constitution. Now, how did this happen? Well, part of the problem was that in the South, there was widespread fears of what blacks and the Farmers' Alliances meant. There was a major push for disenfranchisement in the 1890s, along with an effort to successfully implement Jim Crow or segregation laws. Now, historian C. Van Woodward, in his very influential book published in 1955, titled The Strange Career of Jim Crow, argued that these laws were not part of the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction, nor were they an inevitable development. Instead, he argues, the implementation of Jim Crow laws took place gradually and were a result of economic and political conflicts between poor whites and wealthy whites, conflicts which, in the end, were resolved at the expense of African Americans. Furthermore, he notes that segregation was not a characteristic of the rural South during slavery because there was no need to fix the status of African Americans as that was already settled. Instead, the places where that wasn't fixed, as in the urban areas, almost all of which were in the North, 
Thus, Jim Crow laws came to the South from the North. While schools in Boston and um, railroads in Massachusetts eliminated Jim Crow laws um, prior to the Civil War, public accommodations and housing were severely segregated. Whites in South Boston boasted in 1847 that, quote, not a single colored family lived among them, amongst them, end quote. Furthermore, the further west you went in the so-called free states, the harsher the prescription and segregation. States like Indiana, Illinois, even Oregon incorporated in their constitutions provisions restricting the admission of African Americans to their borders. And most states carved from the North, old Northwest Territory either barred African Americans to some degree or had laws requiring them to post bond guaranteeing their good behavior. Okay, sorry for that little bit of a sidetrack, but I thought it was an important uh, point to make. Anyway, in the end, voting restrictions were essentially a method used by the ruling class to disenfranchise lower class voters in general and not limited to denying the vote to African Americans. This implementation of voter restrictions um, was a deliberate attempt by the elite in the South, who were threatened by the populace, to try and destroy party opposition and widespread political participation. Okay, so that's it for today. That's a pretty good start, stopping point there. Um, next time, we will wrap up our discussion of the populists. Um, before I go, just let me wish you all, um, I hope you all are staying safe in this very odd and dangerous time that we have going on with the pandemic. And I hope uh, that you will be able to continue listening to the show. I do appreciate your support. And I do really um, hope that everyone stays safe and we get through this all together. All right. So thank you very much and have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.